Welcome to Schoolhouse Equity in Education. I am Allison R. Brown, and I am your host. I have said before that I believe teaching is a calling. Those who do it and do it well are able to seize on their students' power and bring it to light, work as partners with their students and their students' families to craft an educational path tailored to that student's unique talents and plant seeds for lifelong learning and success. I have two of those teachers here with me today. Keith Catone is the Associate Director for Community Organizing and Engaging at the Annenberg Institute for School Reform, and he has written a beautiful new book entitled The Pedagogy of Teacher Activism, Portraits of Four Teachers for Justice. Keith profiles four teacher activists in his book, Rosie Fraschella, Lisa North, Natalia Ortiz, and Carrie Coca. Carrie is also joining us today. Welcome to you both, Carrie and Keith. Thank you for being on Schoolhouse today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So, Keith, what is the pedagogy of teacher activism? I guess the short answer from the book is that it's purpose, power, and possibility. Mm-hmm. And I didn't go into the project necessarily thinking I was going to look to develop a pedagogical framework, but more so was interested in how teacher activists thought about their work, how they got to be teacher activists, you know, what is informing what they do on the day-to-day, both inside the classroom and outside. And after spending a lot of time over the course of a couple of years with each of the four women in the book, some ideas began to emerge for me looking at sort of how they did their work in the in their lives uh, leading up to that. And so the idea that what they were really doing, I started to play with the idea of pedagogy as very different from methodology, as very different. This is not a how-to book, how to be a teacher activist. It's really, I think, trying to be a statement about how we need to understand our lives in the context of doing social justice work, of doing social justice education. And really, the pedagogy is about sort of what I write is a conceptual ethos that surrounds the practice of teaching. And that for teacher activists, that is really articulated through some kind of commitment to education as a practice of freedom and possibility and the creation of a new just world. So Mm -hmm. for me, I think that pedagogy was really about understanding how we move through our lives Mm -hmm. in ways that kind of clarify our purpose and ways that build power for and with the communities that we serve as teachers and in ways that create, you know, hope and possibility for a future world that we are trying to cultivate in our own small ways through classrooms, through schools, and through our work in communities and on the streets. I want to read an excerpt from the book's foreword that actually touches on exactly what you just said. So it it says, like the women whose portraits he illuminates, Catone makes a key move of refusal. He refuses to concede that pedagogy be conflated with teaching technique. He disallows the reader from projecting the still-dominant education trope of how-to. There is no lesson plan here, no rubric for evaluating the activismicity of teachers. There is no singular way. Best practices, a harmful yet consistent trope on education, Conjures mythic objectivity. In these details and descriptions, Catone disallows education from furthering the fallacy that pedagogy, let alone cultural transformation, is mere logarithm. 
That was such a powerful observation of this book. And it's so illuminating because it was more than I expected, right? I was expecting to read profiles of teachers who are doing great work, but really you are demonstrating that teacher activism is a way of life. It's a mindset. And that teacher activists are really thinking about their students and are mobilizing their students also to change the world. And, you know, Carrie, I think your profile really shows that you are focused on freedom for your students in the classroom and ultimately liberation for all of us. Is that true? And how do you do that in the classroom? Yeah, I mean, I think in the the Frarian sense, right, that the oppressed also free the oppressor. Mm-hmm. I think that is definitely what we're striving for. I mean, one of the things that has always inspired me is when you give students the opportunity to have these critical conversations and to be involved in activist work, you get to see the power and the hope and possibility that Keith mentioned in young people. And I really feel that when teachers open up that opportunity and take a step back, that students are the ones who will lead and who will speak. And, you know, there's that excerpt in the book about, you know, I took some students with me to a protest and, you know, they got on the mic impromptu and you could hear a (laughs) pin drop. You know, she was the most powerful speaker. I mean, there were politicians, there were very well-regarded people that the community members knew, but it was when Jessica got up to the mic that, you know, you could just hear a pin drop. Mm. When we can empower students in that way, provides those opportunities for hope and possibility and empowerment for them and for us. Keith, how did your experiences as a teacher lead you to think about teacher activism? That's not a, a quote unquote mainstream concept, teacher activism. What were your experiences as a teacher and and how did that help to shape your perspective to be able to really think very critically and end up with a project like this one? I think the the first exposure to even the premise of your question that I had was uh, in college as an undergraduate when I was doing some work locally in Providence with an organization called Direct Action for Rights and Equality. I was doing an organizer training with them. And I asked the lead organizer, and this was at the time I was exploring teaching as a thing that I might want to do or look into and enroll in the undergraduate teacher ed program. And I asked the lead organizer how many teachers were engaged in the work that they did in the community. Because they were doing DARE as their acronym, is doing some of the most grassroots work around economic and racial justice in the city of Providence. And... In my mind, it just made sense that if you were teaching in the city of Providence, you would be connected to DARE because it's the community that you're teaching in. Mm -hmm. And the lead organizer looked at me like I was, you know, (laughs) whatever, like I had four eyes or something, you know, Mm -hmm. and I said, you know, and I was 19 at the time. It was this moment where I realized my assumption about the role of schooling, teaching, Mm -hmm. all of that, and affecting and contributing to social justice change in our communities was not necessarily the operating assumption of what the profession has been kind of framed as or in a mainstream way. And so I always went into teaching with the sense that 
what teaching is is part of this larger social change process, is part of this bigger picture, and that it is the responsibility of teachers to figure out those connections, both for themselves and with their students. Mm -hmm. And so when I became a teacher in New York City, I taught high school in the South Bronx at Banana Kelly High School. And my second year teaching was when 9-11 happened. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people in New York got engaged in anti-war and peace activism after Mm 9-11. We specifically as educators started to see increased efforts at military recruitment in our schools Mm -hmm. across the city. And there were just concerns that folks had. And we started to kind of seek each other out and find each other in these activist social movement spaces Mm -hmm. and realize that there were a bunch of other teachers around. And that's when we started a group called the New York Collective of Radical Educators. So NICOR started in 2002, a year after 9-11, when those of us, many of us who had sort of been connected through broader social justice movement work, Mm -hmm. who were also teachers, we specifically said we need to figure out a way to provide the support and the platform and the sort of organizational, I guess, infrastructure to try to encourage and connect classroom teachers to social justice movement work Mm -hmm. because a lot of us saw that connection but didn't necessarily see the mechanism or the way for teachers to do that. And I think for a a small sort of grassroots volunteer-led effort like NICOR, and there are many other teacher activist organizations around the country like NICOR, that is a big piece of what those organizations are trying to do, Mm -hmm. not to kind of break through this sense that, you know, teaching is really just about you and your classroom, but it is about sort of your contribution to broader social movements. So, Carrie, how would you say that you and the other three women in the book, how are you all different from other classroom teachers? Even the question that you just asked, Keith, I find actually that many teachers are very politically aware and have convictions around what's right, what's just, and what their students deserve. Mm -hmm. I mean, in my case, I was lucky in that I was in a school where my administrator had my back. Mm -hmm. So when I wanted to take students to a rally or a protest, he said, go ahead, you know, and I, and I would warn him, you know, I think there's a possibility there's going to be police there. There are potential safety issues. And she always had a positive attitude, like, Carrie, it's going to be fine. Take your kids. I mean, we took a trip to Washington, D.C. with students. And so I was very lucky to be in a space where my administrators had my back, as well as the rest of the teaching staff were also very politicized. And then I found these different networks of teachers. And there are teachers like this, you know, all over the country who were committed to social justice principles and where we continue to work on this every day. And so, yeah, I actually think that there are many, many teachers just like the four of us um, who profiled in the book. Yeah. Allison, can I jump in on that real yeah, quick? Go ahead, Keith. I think one of the greatest things about portraiture as a sort of research methodology, mm-hmm. which is what I use to develop the work in the book, is that it's sort of predicated upon that we can find the extraordinary in the ordinary, right? Mm -hmm. And that, you know, if you search for good 
and what's good about something that you find amazing things that you can, you know, draw some lessons from. And, you know, Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot, who developed the methodology, teaches in her class that, you know, in the particular resides the general, which is always a phrase that has stuck with me. So, you know, I wasn't so caught up in like, how do I find the four most amazing teacher activists in New York City Mm -hmm. to do this book about? I wasn't looking for that. In Mm -hmm. fact, the criteria was I wanted to find teachers who were actively engaged in work both in and out of their classroom that kind of stretched the envelope a little bit from the, I guess, traditional just teaching and learning focus. Mm -hmm. I didn't necessarily have criteria about what they needed to be involved in, to what extent, um, what everyone was involved in changed over the course of the number of years that I was interacting with folks. And I think the power for me was understanding as amazing as Rosie, Lisa, Natalia, and Carrie are, and I don't want to take any of their amazingness away, I hope that any teacher reading any of their portraits can see themselves there too. Mm -hmm. And that to me is part of the power and the beauty of portraiture as a methodology, but also just, you know, our understanding of what it's going to take to actually make change, right? Is that we don't need these extraordinary individuals. What we need are, you know, an understanding collectively about how we're doing this together. I have been in the field of education for almost 30 years now. I was drawn into the field because I thought it was a place where I could make a difference. It really resonated with me, Carrie, the story of you, you know, kind of your journey to being politicized and, you know, your experience, you know, hearing Pedro Noguera speak. All of my experiences, I keep coming back to the question, why is it that educating children in America has become so hard? And the longer I think about it, the longer I work at it, the more I realize we have made this much more difficult than it should be. And much of the problem lies not in the children, because we have lots of evidence that we know how to educate all types of children, children with disabilities, children with all kinds of challenges. The problem is the way we treat the children. And really being the able to the then have language created, to put to concepts or instincts that you've seen and, and experienced in your, your and own life and in your own education, you know, with seeing white kids being shepherded into the advanced courses and knowing that there was something gifted in every one of the kids that were around, but that they weren't tapped for those classes also. And, you know, kind of your research to be able to then have the language and the tools to pair with those experiences and with those feelings, that is in a lot of teachers, many, many teachers and a lot of people indeed. Another excerpt from the book that I want to read is about what teacher activists are. Uh, And it says, teacher activists recognize a simultaneous need to build empowered democratic spaces in their classrooms and build collective power with others outside of schools. Numerous scholars have raised the argument that an organized educational justice movement is necessary to challenge social inequities, maintain the democratic process of public education, and assert the freedom and liberation of low-income communities and communities of color in the United States. Teacher activists are among those forming such a movement as many articulate their work as connected to a larger social movement for educational justice. 
So that brings up the question of partnerships. And Carrie, I wonder if you would talk about how you partnered with and have partnered with student activists, with the young people in your care. What do partnerships between student and teacher activists look like? And what were the successes of those partnerships? At Vanguard High School, we have an advisory program. And so in advisory, it's a class, it's multi-grade level. Students stay with us for four years. It's really a family. I mean, a lot of students actually would just call me mom because (laughs) we had such strong relationships. I would text them. They would text me. I would text their parents, right? I had strong relationships also with their parents. And so that was one school structure that really helped to build this relationship between myself and my students to also find out, you know, what do they care about? What are they interested in? What are they concerned about outside of, you know, because I was a math teacher, Mm -hmm. right? I wasn't an English teacher. I wasn't a social studies teacher. These were not topics that were typically discussed in my math classroom, right? Mm -hmm. Aside from, you know, when we would do a social justice lesson, which was, you know, very few and far between due to time constraints. But I think that having those very close relationships with my students. And so through advisory, I'm still in touch with students from my advisory. I actually just presented last year at the NICOR conference. Mm -hmm. So I flew out from California out to New York and I co-presented with one of my former students. She has her own family. She's studying to be a teacher. Mm. And so I continue to learn from my students. The students that I talk to now who are in college or they've graduated from college, I have one student who she has finished her PhD and and has a professorship. And Keith, actually, you maybe have met her. She was at Brown for a little while. I think that my students really are the inspiration. And, you know, when they give me advice, sometimes I cry Mm because I'm just so Mm -hmm. blown away by their wisdom and their care for their teacher. Carrie, you described your relationships not only with your students, but with their parents and families, too. How do you build that Mm -hmm. trust and those connections with community and with parents and families? And why is it so important to do so? I mean, in my case, because advisory lasted for four years Mm -hmm. and the way that this structure was, was that really communication from school to home was through me as the advisor. And so many times I would be the liaison, the moderator, when an issue would arise in a classroom, for instance, where I would advocate for the student, you know, something happened in another teacher's classroom, I would be the one to mediate and speak to the parent and then also speak with the teacher. You know, it it actually is really organic in that way because it's just this relationship that we build over time with families. You know, we see them multiple times. We call them. We text them. And maybe just because the culture of our school, maybe that's not normal mm-hmm. <laughs> in other schools to text parents. I have another parent, actually, who her son, who was my student, has a daughter now. And she'll occasionally, you know, text me pictures of <laughs> um, her grandbaby. You know, and so I don't know, like it was very natural in that sense that that relationship was just built over time. And it really is kind of this extended family. If you are building partnerships with students and families to really change the world, (laughs) then, yeah, that would be a very natural 
um, a natural thing to do is to, to be close with your students and with their families. That's wonderful. And I also should just note, Carrie, you mentioned that you flew from California to New York because you are no longer a teacher, but you are a doctoral student right now at the Harvard Graduate School of Education studying social justice mathematics. What is your plan with that? Oh, so that's such a timely question. I am <laughs> finishing up my dissertation, and my dissertation work actually is on social justice mathematics. So in many ways, I kind of took the role of Keith. Mm-hmm. You know, I worked with two teachers who do social justice mathematics in their classroom, and I interviewed their students because I wanted my dissertation to include students' voices mm-hmm. and to really get to see, you know, what are students' takeaways? We have many hypotheses about the goals of social justice mathematics, and I really wanted to get students' voices. And so I'm finishing that up. I'm looking for professorship, really hoping also to recruit doctoral students who are also interested in this work and to be able to have somewhat of a broader reach mm-hmm. of, you know, how do you do this work in mathematics? How do you do this as a math teacher, as a STEM teacher? And, you know, um, colleague and I started the Creating Balance in an Unjust World conference on math education and social justice in 2007. And that's now a biennial conference. So it's used to be every year, every two years. Mm-hmm. And people are craving, what, what should we do next? What lesson ideas do you have? How do I do this in the math classroom? And so my hope is that doing this work in the capacity of a professor will allow me to have a little bit more reach mm-hmm. and influence in the work. Keith, you talked about NICOR, the New York Collective of Radical Educators, and Carrie, you mentioned speaking at their conference. Are there other kind of centralized organizations for teacher activists like NICOR, and what is the value of something like that? There are grassroots teacher activist groups all over the country. Many of them are linked through an informal network of those groups, and so there's the TAG Boston, Teacher Activist Group Boston, there's TAG Philly, there's Educators Network for Social Justice in Milwaukee. I just spoke at the Educators for Social Justice conference in St. Louis mm-hmm. just a couple of weeks ago. And in Chicago, I'm just sort of working my way across the country geographically. <laughs> in Chicago, there's Teachers for Social Justice. Uh, out in the Bay, there's a concentration of groups. There's the Teachers for Social Justice in San Francisco. There's also the People's Education Movement that has chapters in the Bay and in L.A. There's ADE and out in California, the Association of Rasa Educators. I know there's a group up in Portland. And so... There are a ton of these groups that are these sort of volunteer-driven, grassroots, teacher-activist organizations that are kind of helping teachers connect with each other, which I think is a big piece. Sometimes if you're working in school environments that maybe aren't as supportive as those that Carrie and I were fortunate enough to work in, Mm -hmm. finding that colleagueship and finding others who are trying to navigate school as institutional spaces are important. And then I think understanding that 
this is happening all over the country. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that the folks in St. Louis really wanted to talk with me about when we had sort of a breakout session for the leaders in the organization is they really wanted to understand what is this national landscape right now? How do we connect to things? Because in this particular moment, it seems really important for us to be understanding how we're connected to a larger education justice movement and just broader justice movement to push back against a lot of things we're anticipating and seeing come down with the new presidential administration. So there's a lot of activity among all of these groups that I think you know can connect. And then there are some of those organizations that help facilitate the linkages and some of those the rethinking schools has been uh it's a publication but i think it's also a place and a platform that educators have connected through for years I'm a younger organization that i'm on the advisory board for in terms of full transparency but the education for liberation network which organizes the free minds free people conference mm-hmm. every other summer which is coming up in baltimore in july which we are proud to support the communities for just schools yeah. Will Thank be supporting. You. <laughs> you know, what these groups offer is space for people to build and space for people to re-energize mm-hmm. in terms of that the framework I present in the book is the NLBO, but I do think to sort of clarify purpose mm-hmm. and build that power and keep our stay sustained through the realization of hope and possibility. And, yeah. I, and I think those are the things that we need together. And that's what these groups are doing. And then I think we're doing that more. There are other efforts, I think, outside of this particular kind of group that are happening through pushing more social justice unionism. Mm -hmm. I think the advent of social media has allowed teachers to connect in different ways to sound off about what's happening in schools and in communities and to feel connected virtually as well. Mm-hmm. And I think about EduColor as an effort. If you don't know, look up the hashtag on Twitter, E-D-U-C-O-L-O-R, EduColor. And there's a ton of exchange and activity happening there among teachers who are really focused on issues of racial justice. So yeah. hugely important. We can't do movement building work without focusing on these connections and ties and relationships. And I think that's what these groups have a lot to offer. You mentioned the new administration. So after the November election and inauguration of the new president, Keith, what does the pedagogy of teacher activism, purpose, power, and possibility, what does that look like in this moment? I've been trying to figure out how to respond to that because by no design of my own, folks have mentioned how timely the book seems. And clearly that wasn't the plan. But I think for me, what I've gone back to is within understanding purpose, I play with this idea and the word of apprehension. And Mm -hmm. the more common use that I think we're familiar with is the idea of apprehension as anxiety, as in fear, as in feeling uncomfortable and apprehensive about what's going on around us. And I think when I've been talking to folks, we all feel that right now. There's a widespread apprehension about what is happening in our country. And what I feel like I was seeing in the example of the four teachers' lives in the book was that there were moments of what I call anxious apprehension Mm -hmm. that 
led to or helped develop a more critical apprehension, which goes to the second meaning of the word, which is about understanding and grasp. Mm -hmm. And Paulo Freire actually calls upon um, folks to apprehend the world Mm -hmm. and to understand the world. And so where I'm drawing from at the moment is we're in a state of sort of widespread anxiety. And I can only kind of feel at all settled in that settled is the wrong word, but at all hopeful to move to the other piece about hope and possibility that this is a step toward understanding mm-hmm. that this is helping us move to something where we're going to gain a newfound understanding and criticalness around the work that needs to be done and how to do it. And I mean, I go back to a point that Carrie was just making for me, that answer has been in looking to young people. Mm-hmm. I've been saying to a lot of folks lately, you know, if you're over the age of 25, you helped build whatever it is we're dealing with right now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we might not have voted for Trump, yeah. but we contributed to whatever the conditions were that enabled this. We we're somewhat <laughs> responsible, complicit. Yeah. And so we need to sit down mm-hmm. <laughs> and look to young people who's who are dealing with the material and, and, and real consequences of this world and are responding. And mm-hmm. if we look carefully enough, we can be taught by youth leaders around the country who are moving, who are helping, I think, frame and act in ways that are going to kind of save us in a sense. And so that to me is sort of where what I've been taking on the road is that <laughs> message is, yes, I feel you. You're anxious. We're fearful. You know, if, if you're not, you're probably not paying attention. Um, you're also angry. And I think in some ways there's good anger mm-hmm. there. But in order to channel that, we need to come to some critical understanding of what's happening. And I'm looking to young people and looking at the power that they're demonstrating for that, you know, and and in Providence, young people walked out during the inauguration. Mm -hmm. The only way I got through that morning in a healthy state of mind was being an adult ally and supporting the young people to do that action. It kind of almost made me forget what was happening down in D.C. at that time, just Mm -hmm. because I was in awe of the power of young people. And you know, Carrie mentioned crying when young folks say stuff. I le- I went up to the student organizers to thank them genuinely just for me. Like, I was, yeah. like thank them after that action. And I teared up mm-hmm. because I realized how much I needed that yeah. and how much I needed them to mm-hmm. take me under their care for the morning. Yeah. I think we need to continue to look in that direction. I don't remember now who it was, if it was you or Keith, but one of you described your relationship with capoeira as an obsession. Um, and, so, and I totally understand that. What is capoeira and what is your relationship with it? And how has it really influenced the way that you govern yourself in the classroom? Capoeira is an Afro-Brazilian martial art, and it incorporates dance-like movements, kicks, takedowns. Takedowns are a big part of capoeira to try to make the other person fall, as well as music. So you learn to play the instrument and you learn to sing. I'm not training as much as I was at the time I was teaching in New York City. But for me, it's really been a metaphor for life. There's this song in capoeira, my favorite song in capoeira called Navida Sekai. Basically, the song says, like, in life you fall... If you don't fall, you're not a capoeirista. 
my teacher in New York would always say, you know, you fall gracefully or you fall and you shake, you know, shake the dust off your pants and you keep it going. And the other thing is that, and Keith writes about this in the book, is that we need everybody. We mm-hmm. need a circle. You cannot play top water by yourself. Mm-hmm. Just like we can't organize by ourselves. Right. And so it's really just been a guiding principle for me, as well as a means of self-care. Mm-hmm. And actually, when I was training in New York, many of my friends in Kapoor were also public school teachers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Kapoor also comes from this tradition of resistance. Yeah, And so there are just so many parallels, I think, between Kapoor and teaching, life, organizing work. And I just wanted to add to what Keith was saying about some of the different organizations. The people's education movement in the Bay Area, I'm part of the people's ed in the Bay Area. What's interesting, I think, about people's ed that I realize now in reading Keith, your book in its entirety, is that you know how you spoke about the lack of diversity in some of the organizing spaces in NICOR, mm-hmm. and I think you wrote about it also with Jem, mm-hmm. um, is that People's Ed in the Bay Area is actually a teachers of color group, and we do have also open events that are open to folks who don't identify as folks of color. And those meetings and these organizing spaces are always just my oxygen. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, it actually doesn't even matter to me what we talk about at the meeting. It doesn't matter to me what the programming is. You know, it's just that time to be around other like-minded folks. Yeah. You know, it's not about what curriculum do you have that maybe I can use or what strategy do you have? It is those relationships and that solidarity that we, I think, can build with each other. I don't know. You know, my brain just starting to think about kind of our intersectionality of our different identities and how we can all support each other to support our students. And Carrie, both of your parents spent time in a Japanese internment camp in the United States. How do you think that has shaped your outlook and your teacher activism? Yeah, that is the spark for me. Mm -hmm. And I think when I was younger, it kind of laid dormant, you Mm -hmm. know, it's kind of this dormant monster, right, that Mm -hmm. I think I draw a lot of power from thinking about my family's experience. And it can be emotional for me as well. I, I was teaching a class at the University of San Francisco, and I shared with my class about my family's experience, which was actually very difficult for me to talk about. And to think right now about the so-called Muslim ban, this new, you know, executive order, it's a very eerie feeling for me. It's a very scary feeling. I almost feel like I'm living in the twilight zone right now. Mm -hmm. That for me, I think, is the spark for me in terms of having a critical consciousness and understanding these systems of oppression And what can we do to resist these systems of oppression while maintaining our own sense of self and sanity and having hope and possibility amidst feeling oppressed? I want to to thank you both for being on Schoolhouse today. Keith Catone is the author of a new book entitled The Pedagogy of Teacher Activism, 
Portraits of Four Teachers for Justice, and Carrie Coca is one of those incredible teacher activists. Thank you so much for being on Schoolhouse today. Keith, if folks want more information about you or the book, how can they find you online? Online, you can visit activistpedagogy.com, um, and it has more information about the book. You can get in touch with me that way. It has a emerging blog. I would not call it a full blog yet, but <laughs> getting there. And Carrie, if people want more information about you and your work, how can they find you? Folks can email me at Carrie Coca, K-A-R-I-K-O-K-K-A at gmail.com. I would love to be in conversation with other folks interested in the same work. And also, I was going to say, I think, Keith, do you want to also mention you have a couple of book events coming up? I do. I'll be speaking up at Harvard on March 7th and also will be at the Alumni of Color Conference at Harvard Graduate School of Ed the weekend before that, March 4th, and we're going to be doing a couple other events coming up. It'll be updated on the events page of the website, but a, a New York book release party looking at either May 19th or May 20th. That will have all four teachers in the book present. It will have Rudy Bravo, who painted the portraits that make the cover so beautiful, mm-hmm. and it'll be a fun time. Oh, and just a quick shout out, because Allison read a piece of the forward, mm-hmm. which was written by Dr. Lee Patel. She's amazing. You should actually look up her work uh, <laughs> as well. She does amazing, amazing work. So, and just, you know, couldn't have framed my book in a more powerful way. So thank you to her. And she'll be at the event with me at Harvard and a couple of other things too. Thank you both again for being on Schoolhouse today. This was a lot of fun. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to everyone for listening to Schoolhouse Equity and Education. Remember to follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter and sign up for the Communities for Just Schools Fund newsletter at cjsfund.org. Have a wonderful week.